three. You're listening to Sports Talk Chicago with your host, John Zaglul. John, I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. You got an awesome voice, man, and that was a terrific <laughs> intro. You're like a pro's pro. You know, that was the first time somebody ever said that, John. No, you're the first person to ever say anything like that. That's, that's very interesting. You got it, John. Anything for a fellow Chicago guy? <laughs> well, what a great question. That's a great question. Nobody's actually asked me that. <laughs> I like it. What a great question. I never heard that before. Chase, wait, wait, Chase Sully is what? You're saying he's not a Hall of Fame candidate? You know, it's it's funny. I, I, You may be the only person that I've heard make that connection. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm doing great. By the way, you have an outstanding voice. I'm not sure about your face because I haven't met you, but your voice is great. You're doing a much better job than I ever did. You've had some heavy hitters uh, guests on too, man, so keep up the good work, but it's good to be with you, and I'm ready to talk sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to Sports on Chicago. My name's John Zaglore. Great to have you here. Today's edition of the program, we're going to break down the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Coming up in just a moment, plus... Brand new interview today with Tom Berducci, senior writer at Sports Illustrated and analyst at MLB Network, the author of a new book with Joe Madden. We talked with him extensively about his baseball Hall of Fame ballot, MLB free agency news, and so much more. It's a great interview, and it comes your way near the midway point of this show. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports, Facebook John's Glue. Want to watch more of this show? Head on over to SportsTalkChicago.com. Let us start today with this. For years, I've covered the Baseball Hall of Fame and all the issues that come along with the voting. There are players who've been mistreated, players who've been falling off the ballot for pretty much no reason other than personal vendettas. We've seen steroid players go on and off. Some steroid players have gotten in. The process is flawed beyond belief. And the more and more I cover it, the more frustrated I get because there are some good players who are not in the Hall of Fame today. Shouldn't you say good, great players who are not in the Hall of Fame who should be, who maybe didn't win a popularity contest or who maybe had some sort of PED usage, but yet the writers elect other people who have the same usage, the same track record. Nobody's going to be perfect, especially when you have a body of old men voting on something. (laughs) But there are some clear omissions that make me wonder what they're looking at or what their criteria is in picking a player for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Last year in a pretty publicized ballot, only David Ortiz got in. And by the way, Ortiz has steroid issues and steroid ties. didn't matter because everybody likes Big Poppy. Everybody appreciates what he's done for the Red Sox, and so do I. Great player, but steroid user. D.H., not the best player ever at his position. But because of his personality and some of his antics off the field and winning a World Series with the Red Sox, everybody pushed him in on the first ballot. Meanwhile, good players, great players, people who may have been tied to PEDs but were the best of their generation, like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, fell off the ballot last year. Kurt Schilling, who is a definite Hall of Famer regardless of politics, also fell off the ballot. Billy Wagner, a friend of this program, one of the greatest closers in MLB history, is fighting to get in with three years left. Other players who I think are slam dunk, including Jeff Kent, was the most home runs at second base in history. He's in danger of falling off the ballot, too. See my point? It's not perfect. It's very flawed. It's a popularity contest. There are different rules made for different people. And that's why it's such an issue with the Baseball Hall of Fame. There are too many guys who the writers have gotten wrong and too many guys who are in there who the writers put in who shouldn't be there. Why the hell is Phil Rizzuto in the Hall of Fame? Well, it's a New York bias. Phil Rizzuto was not a great baseball player. Nice broadcaster, funny guy, not a good baseball player in the Hall of Fame. No numbers to support it in the Hall of Fame. We can look back to so many different players in the 30s, 40s, 50s where the writers ushered in for no reason. Even today, Fred McGriff, who fell off the ballot 
seven home runs short of 500 just got in via the Veterans Committee. That same committee which had Theo Epstein on it. Sent down to Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, Roger Clemens, Dale Murphy. Great players who should probably be there. You thank your friend Theo Epstein, former Cubs president, for that. Partially. Other people on the committee, too. This is my point. It's extremely biased. It does not take into account the greatness of each player numerically, statistically. It's a popularity contest, and it's all based off of conjecture and opinions instead of facts. I wanted to make sure I prefaced my ballot with all of that background so you understand where I'm coming from when I make my picks. I'm not a writer. I don't have a true ballot. If I ever did, it'd be the greatest achievement and honor of my entire life because I'd actually pick people who deserve to be there. Yeah, there'd be many different writers. We'll have them on this program who say one of two things. Their ballot is exclusive or it's not. I've seen people say that on this ballot this year, there are potentially 15 different people who could be in the Hall of Fame. I don't see it. I've seen others who vote for one or turn in a blank ballot. I don't see that either. There are some great players on this ballot this season who deserve to be enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame. My fear is a lot of those who deserve it may not get in, ever. And it's a damn shame that we have to bring this up and talk about it. My ballot's going to be pretty small this year. There are not that many great players on this ballot. Great players. Harry Bonds is off. Roger Clement is off. And whatever you feel about steroids, let me just say this, they were the greatest ever in their generation with steroids. They should be there. Not everybody who used steroids should be in the Hall of Fame. The main Manny Ramirez? No. No, shouldn't be there. Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, maybe, but really not too sure because without steroids, they were not Hall of Fame players. They needed that boost to accrue the stats needed to get into Cooperstown. You could argue that 1998 saved baseball, but regardless, without steroids, they wouldn't have gotten in. Additionally, Bonds and Clemens, even with steroids, were the best steroid users ever. Not saying we should be happy with what they did, but I'll tell you what, MLB profited greatly off of letting players use steroids at that time. They didn't say no. They didn't crack down. They let it go. Now, all of a sudden, 20, 30 years later, we're going to penalize guys for doing what MLB liked at that time. I don't like that Barry Bonds broke the home run record, but at the end of the day, he did enough to be in the Hall of Fame. Come on. Roger Clemens did enough to be in the Hall of Fame. got to be kidding me. This is no question, and yet they're out. They're never going to get in, probably. Never. But yet David Ortiz is qualified enough to get in as a DH who hit 500 home runs due to, you guessed it, steroids. This is my problem with the Baseball Hall of Fame and the entire election process. So, my ballot's going to be small this year. We'll go through the whole ballot, too. But I'm going to give you my picks. If I had a vote, you get to vote up to 10. I'm going to give you my picks for the Baseball Hall of Fame this year. First and foremost, Billy Wagner. And, yes, I am biased. Don't say it. Yes, I had him on my program. I like him. He's a good guy. But more than that, he was a great closer. Unbelievable closer. Wagner in his career, 2.31 ERA, 47 and 40 record, 422 saves and only 903 innings pitched. Had he played maybe three or four more years, if he got to 500, he'd be a Hall of Famer, no doubt. And nobody would be questioning, but people question because his totals aren't there. Well, let me tell you this, here's better numbers in some cases than Mariano Rivera and Trevor Hoffman. It's a similar war to Trevor Hoffman. More strikeouts per nine compared to Rivera and Hoffman. He was a dominant pitcher. Dominant. When he came on the mound, game was over. Dominant pitcher. He didn't just get you out and move on. He struck you out all the time. Hagner was a seven-time All-Star, and even at the end of his career, 38 years old, hits to a 1.43 ERA. At 37 saves, made an All-Star team out in Atlanta. He was always dominant, always successful, always getting the job done for whatever team he played for. Had he played for one team throughout his career, probably would have been a Hall of Famer like Trevor Hoffman or Rivera. Had he played maybe two more years, probably would have been a Hall of Famer. But because of everybody looking at just the same number, 
They don't want to let him in, even though 30 years ago it was Bruce Souter who had just 300 saves who got in easily. And now Bruce Souter invented the splitter and made it what it was today. Closures back then were different. But Billy Wagner is one of the most dominant closures you're ever going to see. That's a fact. Might sound crazy to this new generation. Some people don't know him. Wasn't really public or a big personality per se, but he was a great closer. People should be rewarded for the work they do. Billy Wagner did great work. Great closer. Great pitcher. Good person. There's no reason why he's on his eighth year on the ballot and may not get in. Wagner last year was on the ballot and got significant voting help at 51%, but he still needs to get to 75. He ain't going to get there this year, I can tell you that. After this year, he's two more years left. It's going to be down to the wire for Wagner. If he doesn't get in, it's another gross disservice. The Hall of Fame is done, and the writers have done. Billy Wagner is number one on my ballot. He should be in the Hall of Fame today. Now. There's no reason it's taken eight years to do. You can look up his numbers. You can understand the contributions he's made to the many different teams he's played for. You can realize that some of his ranked stats, like Kings per nine and war, are similar, if not better, than Mariano and Hoffman. And we're still sitting here questioning and wondering whether or not he deserves to be there. Give me a break. Billy Wagner is my number one pick. Number two, Jeff Kent. Say this every year, and I'm going to say it again. What is the Hall of Fame all about? The best at your position. You have to be one of the most elite baseball players in all of baseball history to be there. The number is 0.1% of all baseball players ever are in the Hall of Fame. That's the percentage, 0.1 of 1% make it to the Hall of Fame. So if you're a player who leads all second baseman or time in home runs at your position, don't you think you should be in the Hall of Fame? Would it help that the old record owner is in the Hall of Fame? Would it help that the old record owner was a Cub who was very popular, won an MVP like the current player, yet the current player can't muster any support? That's right. That's Jeff Kent. In comparison to Brian Chadberg, I know Brian Chadberg was a great player and did much more defensively than Kent. But you can't argue with the fact that Kent blew away Chadberg's home run record of 282. He hit 377 in his career. Kent won an MVP. Kent played for a long time. And Kent is, in my opinion, and this is true based on numbers, one of the greatest offensive second basemen in baseball history. Hall of Fame's about history, preserving the game, telling people 50 years down the road who was the greatest, who were the greatest of all time. Kent deserves to be there, and he's not deemed not good enough by the baseball writers. He's at 33% entering his last year on the ballot. I can pretty much guarantee you that he will not be elected to the Hall of Fame, and that's going to be another disservice, and he's going to wind up on this Veterans Committee and rot like everybody else. Like Barry Bonds, Andrew Clemens, Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy has been retired for 30, 40 years, still hoping to get in. Albert Bell. There are going to be tons of players on this Veterans Committee ballot who then will wait and wait and wait and hope that this committee of 16 people who are biased We'll get them in. Gross disservice by the baseball writers. Gross disservice again by the Hall of Fame. You have to be the greatest at your position, right? Everybody says, did he win an MVP? Was he the greatest at his position? What made him so elite? Jeff Kent won an MVP. So he was considered at one time the best player in baseball. Jeff Kent has the most home runs all-time at second base. He's the greatest power-hitting second baseman, one of the greatest offensive second basemen in baseball history, and yet polling at 32 or 33%. It's wrong. Probably won't get in. Probably will never get in, but he's on my ballot this year at number two. Number three, Jimmy Rollins. I think he deserves a vote, and I don't know if he's ever going to get in, but I'll tell you what, Jimmy Rollins was, similarly to 
Jeff Kent, middle infielder, who at one point was the greatest player in the entire game. Many people forget about what Rollins did on Philadelphia. Last year, he had 9.4% on the ballot for support. Rollins, almost 2,500 hits. Rollins played for a long time. Gold Glove winning second baseman. And yes, in 2007, I remember watching one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen from a player. Rollins had 212 hits. Rollins had 20 triples, 30 home runs, and easily won the MVP that year. Played every single game in Philadelphia and helped them out big time when they eventually became a World Series juggernaut in the late 2000s. Rollins, in his career, stacks up pretty favorably, in my opinion, to other second basemen. We look at some of his similarity scores. It includes Barry Larkin, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Roberto Alomar, and Ryan Sandberg. Lou Whitaker's the only one of those not in the Hall of Fame. So Jimmy Rollins, comparatively, is similar to all these Hall of Famers. Barry Larkin was in right away. Alan Trammell took some time. He got in. Roberto Alomar, easy choice, got in. And Ryan Sandberg, everybody loved. Other players even. Joe Morgan. J-Bale Ray Durham. It's clear. Jimmy Rollins is comparable to a lot of players already in the Hall of Fame. So why is he not there? Why is he only garnering 10%, 9% of support? He's only in year two. He's got a long way to go. But I have a feeling he may not get in. Another gross disservice. Jimmy Rollins... Was a franchise guy, played with Philadelphia for the majority of his career, helped them in a World Series, won an MVP, has numbers to support his case, was a great offensive and defensive middle infielder and shortstop. How could you say he doesn't deserve to be there? I think it's pretty clear to me that Rollins deserves a spot, but again, I have a feeling he may not get in, but that's my third choice. Only got one more choice, Mark Burley. This might be a biased vote to an extent. I know he was a White Sox forever, and I even grew up a Cubs fan. I was not a Mark Burley guy growing up, but I respect what he's done in Major League Baseball. I respect his longevity. I respect his ability to be so durable throughout his career. Right now, Burley is at 6%. Got that last year. Going to be entering his third year on the ballot. Burley pinched forever. Burley, near the end of his career, even at 36 years old, Nearly had 200 innings pinched. Pitched a perfect game. Won a World Series. Did so much for the White Sox. Then Toronto, later in his career, and did it all by throwing 85 miles per hour. He was the left-handed Greg Maddox, to an extent, of this generation. I appreciate what he did as a player. I enjoyed watching him pitch. How about this number? 15 straight years of 10-plus wins and 14 straight years of 200-plus innings pitched. See, this is my point. You don't see this longevity anywhere. We're even talking about 1960s, 1950s pitchers. Somebody always got hurt eventually. Somebody couldn't go 200 innings in a certain year, got wiped out. Mark Burler did that for 14 and 15 years, respectively. 14 years of 200-plus innings pitched. Would have done it in his last year, too, but he finished about two innings short. And 15 years of 10-plus wins. You can say wins don't matter, wins are not important. Well, in this generation, that's going to be on the ballot now. Wins still did matter to an extent. Burnley had 214 in his career and averaged 14 every single season. He was a frequent All-Star, frequent Gold Glove Award winner, one of the best defensive pitchers of his era. And wherever he was, there just seemed to be success. He was the face of the White Sox for a long time. Grew up a White Sox, homegrown White Sox, and played with them all the way from 2000 to 2011. Went to Miami, did good. Then three more years of productivity in Toronto. If Mark Burley was in baseball today, he would be revered. The game today is even weaker. Pitchers are even weaker. There is no pitchers going 200 innings every season for 14 years. doesn't happen anymore. There's no pitcher today who'd be getting 10-plus wins for 15 years in a row. Everybody's getting hurt. Everybody's on an innings limit. Wins don't matter anymore. These are things that are important that we should be discussing and analyzing. Burley will probably never get in, and I'm going to be okay with that. This is not somebody I'm strong.
strongly, strongly tied to. But if I had a ballot, I would vote for him. 100% would. He did things that we will never see again. That's true. We're never going to see anybody throw 14 straight years of 200-plus innings. We're never going to see anybody throw and get 10 wins for 15 years in a row. We're not going to see it again. I'm telling you right now, you will never see it again. Never. Nobody's gotten there. Clayton Kershaw hasn't done it. Justin Berlander hasn't done it. Max Scherzer hasn't done it. Painler due to injury, but still, there is value in never getting hurt. So you look at these pitchers today. All the best pitchers in MLB today. Have any of them done what Mark Burley has done? Have any of them went 15 years with 10-plus wins? Have any of them gone 14 years with 200-plus innings pitched? The answer is no. Even your greatest pitchers, who we could all agree, will be Hall of Famer. Scherzer, Kershaw, Verlander, maybe Zach Grinke. None of them have done it. So why is there not more support for Mark Burley? If you're like to Jack Morris with a 3.90 career ERA, Burley at 3.81 is not that bad. That set the standard differently for ERA and Hall of Fame status. Jack Morris has the worst ERA amongst anybody in the Hall of Fame today. 3.90 should not get you anywhere near the Hall of Fame, and yet they let him in. So at that point, if you're going to let him in, let's talk about other players who were screwed by former processes who deserve to be there. Mark Burley deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. There's a case to be made. I would hope that more people realize that as his candidacy moves forward. There's a path to Cooperstown for Burley. What makes his story even better is that he was not a flamethrower. He actually pitched. Not through, pitched. As a baseball purist, proud baseball purist, I appreciate that. I appreciate what he's done. These are numbers we're never going to see again. How can you say there's no case to be made? How can you say he may not be Hall of Fame worthy? So that's my ballot, and I'm sticking to it. Four guys only. I know I got 10 spots, but I don't see anybody else on this ballot who is Hall of Fame worthy. I see tons of great players, tons of guys I grew up watching who were very good in their time. I see steroid guys who should not be there because the steroids impacted their performance to an extent that if they didn't use steroids, they wouldn't be on the ballot. But I don't see many people who deserve truly to be there. So my ballot, again, as follows, Billy Wagner, Jeff Kent, Jimmy Rollins, and Mark Burley. That's it. Other players on this ballot, we could go over. Scott Rowland, no way. Todd Helton, Horace Field, Andrew Jones, one of the only players who would get in who'd have less than 2,000 hits. Take that. That's a fact. Gary Sheffield, steroids, Alex Rodriguez, 100% steroids from the beginning throughout his entire career. Manny Ramirez, the same. Omar Vizquel, he's a borderline guy, but now with all these issues involving off-the-field stuff, I don't think he'll ever get in, and I wouldn't vote for him. Andy Pennant, steroids again. That'll be a brand-new, very good player, but very good, not great. Corey Hunter, again, very good. Nearly there, but not there. And then other first-time guys, Bronson Arroyo, hell no. Carlos Beltran, you could make a case, but the Astros situation for him, and then on top of that, even more than the Astros situation, was never elite, never won an MVP, was never near the top of his class in baseball. He was always a top 30 player, top 20 player. Nobody ever said, wow, that Carlos Beltran is one of the best players in baseball. He was never that impactful of a guy and he does not have any of the qualifying numbers to be there. Matt Cain, no way. Ari Dickey, no way. Jacoby Ellsbury. <laughs> Andre Ethier, J.J. Hardy, John Lackey, former Cub. Mike Napoli, Johnny Peralta, Houston Street, Jared Weaver, Jason Worth, and Francisco Rodriguez. K-Rod could have a case to be made, but I'll tell you this. Although K-Rod has the record for most saves ever in a single season, he may have more saves than Billy Wagner. Actually, only a little bit more. Who is more dominant? Wagner by far. Hey, Rod may get some votes. I have a feeling he might fall off the ballot entirely. If he got to 500 saves, that would be a way in for him, but he didn't. And he was never that dominant. He was able to get out. He was able to preserve leads in games. But when Billy Wagner came in, it was three strikeouts done, game over. Hey, Rod had issues as his career developed. 
wasn't always consistent. Played for a long time, got a lot of saves, but I don't think he's able to be considered great enough. That's why the totals don't always matter. The rate stats matter too. Billy Wagner's rate stats are better in some cases than Hoffman and Rivera. K-Rods aren't. Not even close. So there could be a case to be made there, but I would be surprised if he ever got in. One more time, my ballot. Wagner, Kent, Rollins, Burley. I'm proud to say it. Of course, my word means nothing. But I would hope that I could influence some writers who watch this program or guests on this show about that way. Please stop getting it wrong. That's all I have to say. There are some great players you've left out of the Hall of Fame who may never get in now. Even steroid guys. Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame. There are great players from eras that people remember that you are shutting out of baseball history for no reason other than they did one thing wrong. But you make exceptions for other people who don't deserve to be there or who have done steroids or who have been connected to issues. Stop erasing the history of the game. Make the right choice. You have a voice. This is important. Do it the right way. There are good players. There are great players. There are good people. And their careers and their legacies on the line here. Make the right call. You and I both know Billy Wagner deserves to be there. You and I both know Jeff Kent deserves to be there. The other two could be a stretch. Those are personal favorites. But those two, for sure, in my opinion, are slam dunks. Make the right call. Do the right thing. Help out the Hall of Fame look more credible this time around. More to come here on Sports Talk Chicago. My interview with Tom Berducci comes up next, so stay tuned. Sports Talk Chicago. Every time's a glue and we have back and ready for today's special guest. He's a Fox Sports broadcaster, senior baseball writer at Sports Illustrated, and an MLB Network insider. Please welcome Tom Berducci to the program. Tom, it's great to have you on. How are you? I am well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. What have you made of this hectic baseball offseason, first off? <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of money flying around. This can happen a lot once we get the CBA in place. First full year uh, with the CBA and What's interesting to me is you have to have teams really hungry for championships driving the market. We're so used to teams like the Dodgers, right, being at the top of the market. But now I look at Philadelphia, Texas, Chicago, uh, not Chicago, uh, San Diego, and the New York Mets. It's amazing, especially when you start with the New York Mets, a payroll of around $349 million. And I'm not sure they're done yet either. <laughs> um, but these are owners now running their team like a fan. If you're a fan, you have to love it. I'm not sure the other owners love it. But it's exciting to see teams really stepping up. Which move would you say has been most impactful for their respective team? Well, I'm going to start with Jacob DeGrom because, to me, he's the best pitcher on the planet. And I know people kind of rolled their eyes and said, man, five years for a guy who's been hurt a lot. But when Texas made that deal, in my mind, they went from a team that was just kind of okay to a team that I think now can challenge for a wild card spot. I think Jake DeGrom, you know, he finished last year healthy. He had that scap bruise that really is not an indicator of potential problems going forward. He's had really healthy season at a four-year run there where he was making every start. I, I, I just think Texas, to me, now has put themselves in at least wild-card discussion. They have not made up the gap on the Houston Astros. But, man, when you have a chance to get the best pitcher on the planet, and, of course, five years, I'm not sure Jake is going to be a dominant pitcher at 39. But for the time being, I, I think that's the biggest impact. What about to San Diego? They've been doling out a lot of money, specifically, really, on Xander Bogart with the big signing, too. That that seems to be a big impact. Oh, no question about it. When you look at San Diego, they can run out of infield of all shortstops. Machado at third, <laughs> Xander at short, moving Kim over to second, Cronenworth at first, and, of course, you got Fernando Tatis likely to be playing in left field. So uh, it was Earl Weaver who once said, give me a team of all shortstops, and they're almost doing that position by position on the field um yeah again this team trying to win its first world series championship and i don't think what they're doing payroll wise is sustainable 
it's just not that kind of a market size to do it year in and year out the way teams like the Dodgers and Yankees do. Um, but yeah, this is definitely a team that can, that can win the world series as they're constituted right now. So, you know, we're seeing these long contracts too, with Trey Turner, 11 years, Bryce Harper, 13 years, Bogarts at 11. I mean, so many players now getting paid to age 39, 40, 41. And I think it's important for fans to remember these teams don't sit down and say, wow, this guy's still going to be an impact player at 40 or 41. (laughs) It's really the cost of acquisition where, you know, it takes that many years to get, or in the Yankees case with Aaron judge to retain the player. And also it's, it's really an accounting trick, if you will, for average annual value as it relates to the luxury tax. So you, amortize the cost of the player over more years that luxury tax hit goes down a little bit but yeah i don't think these teams are all of a sudden thinking this is a good buy at uh, 30 million plus a year at age 40 <laughs> what's your take on the cubs signings or lack the rubbing free agency yeah the cubs are one of those teams kind of in right in between there um you know, Jamison Tyone, I thought was a, a nice addition there i don't think he's an impact pitcher at all you know look at his career he's had one full season i'm talking about qualified season where he pitched enough innings and was better than average uh, but he has proven durable the last couple of years with the yankees coming off the second tommy john surgery um you know i, I looked at wilson Contreras and I, I scratched my head like why aren't the cubs trying to keep this guy he's one of the best hitting catchers in the game i think his defense has improved obviously not a defense first catcher behind the plate um, but it makes you wonder, you know, where the Cubs go forward with Jan Gomes probably right now the leading candidate to start. So, listen, the Central Division is not really strong. The Cardinals still, to me, are the team to beat. And I think sometimes it gives teams this, kind of this leeway to say, you know, we're pretty good here. We have a chance to win the division, which is true. Um, but when you talk about having a team that can win the World Series, that's a completely different story. So we're seeing teams in the AL East and the NL East especially ramping up to win 95 plus games because that's what it takes in those divisions not the case in the centrals are the cubs done spending money do you think i know they're supposed to be in a carlos correa but things have moved there quickly what do you think they do moving forward yeah i don't think they're necessarily done spending money i think obviously they're still in it for correa minnesota is still in it um it looks like the dodgers are not in it the way they're operating maybe there's a chance of swanson there but uh, the Giants, to me, look like the front runners to get Correa. This probably will go into January. He's a Scott Boris client. You know, he he at the top of the market and what really has been a really good shortstop market. And the Cubs really are in it, but will they go the extra mile based on where this market is going? Uh, you, you don't think – put it this way. You can't think you're going to get a bargain the longer you wait here. I just – for the guy like Correa, top of the market – it doesn't seem to me the Cubs have had the appetite to get in at that kind of number. Who else do you think they could be targeting if they don't get Correa? Where else could they be spending their money? Well, I think Swanson is a good fit. Listen, I'm a fan of Nico Horner. I really am. Um, it doesn't mean you're set at shortstop. You can always slide him over to second base. Um, but I think you're okay with Horner there at the position. I, I think I liked what he did this year. I thought he took a step forward, but Swanson will be out there. It doesn't look like he's going back to Atlanta, um, you know, probably in that, you know, mid twenties type range, 20 to 25 million a year, depending on what the length is here. I like Swanson a lot. I mean, he hits velocity as well as any big league hitter. You know, I, I know a lot of the sabermetricians don't want to hear this, but he is a guy who's used to winning uh, going back to his college days at Vandy, certainly in Atlanta these last few years, he's played in big games. He hits good pitching. Um, I think where the Cubs are at, I think he's actually a good fit for the Cubs. I like him there. You don't have to worry. This is not a sabermetric first show, so you didn't offend me there. <laughs> what, what about the White Sox? So they've been kind of quiet in free agency. They got Mike Clevenger, obviously, in a one-year deal. What do you make of their situation right now? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think what they're trying to do here is flip this team, make it a better defensive team, make it a team that has more balance offensively. I thought in the past, as talented as they were, the White Sox are probably a little too one-dimensional, a little too right-handed a little too much aggressiveness in the batter's box didn't really work count too much. Um, So, you know, listen, I love Jose Abreu. You're going to miss him clubhouse guy, a guy who knows how to get runs in. I understood the move though. You know, you have to have Vaughn have his true position, let him play first base and and just give him the runway to go. Uh, So I understood that, but now what's on the other side of it. I still think they need a left-handed bat. You know, a guy like Ben Attendee makes a lot of sense for them, a left-handed hitter 
who can work the count, get on base. I thought Nimmo would have been a good uh, fit for the White Sox, but obviously he's back with the Mets at a number that's pretty high. I thought was probably uh, even for this market, I thought was pretty high, but he's off the board. But I think the White Sox there do have to, I think, get another left-handed bat. Probably it's a matter of also with Colos that they want to push him. Is he in the lineup as soon as opening day? Um, I do think they need another bat, especially in the outfield. What do you think about their change at manager? Do you think that's going to help them this season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you'll get a lot of energy there. The new staff here, Grafal, I think, has always been a guy that's been on radar for a lot of years for a potential manager. Um, so, yeah, I think he's going to come in with a lot of energy, a new look. Um, you know, I don't want to say the White Sox were stale under Tony, but it just the team just didn't respond uh, – the way that I thought that they would, especially last season when they had the injuries and Anderson going down, they just didn't seem to recover from some of the key injuries they had. Um, so, yeah, I think there's going to be a renewed energy there with the White Sox. And by the time we get to opening day, I think the, the lineup will be different. How do you feel about their playoff and World Series chances this year? I mean, they have a similar roster, new manager. Where, where do you see them fitting in? Yeah, I think a lot to me depends on Giolito. I mean, it took a step backward, obviously, and I think the potential is there in that rotation. Well, I really liked what Kopech did. I thought he took a step forward. Um, but I'm not sure where Lucas is at right now. I thought he was a guy who fronted the rotation, and now he doesn't look like that number one. Still can be. Um, so I think probably the rotation, and, and I know I talked a lot about an outfield bat, but I think the rotation will decide where this team's go. I still look at what wins in postseason baseball. And I know starters aren't going seven, eight every time, but I certainly like to see those big time swing and miss guys in the rotation when we need to get to a postseason environment. And I, I still think that plays. Tom Berducci here on Sports Talk Chicago. Tom, what do you make of the current Hall of Fame ballot? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think it's the one year where there hasn't been a lot of buzz compared to some of the last few years. Of course, that has a lot to do with some of the PED guys coming off the ballot and being passed on to the um, Contemporary Era Committee, talking obviously about Bonds and, and Clemens. Uh, and then Schilling is another one um, who didn't get in, came really close for some other reasons. But yeah, the buzz is a little bit muted. I think the key for me is how do the voters look at Carlos Beltran? Um, you know, I'm not saying he's a first ballot Hall of Famer by any, you know, before the sign stealing scandal, but that certainly brings it into question that people are going to stop and look and evaluate. Well, how does that compare to PEDs? Um, you know, how do I judge his numbers um, on, on the numbers themselves? I personally think he has Hall of Fame type numbers, but again, he, he by being an actor part of that 2017 science stealing scandal he introduced another element that the voters have to take a look at you know and when it comes to character to me i look at that clause and i know people uh, some people like to dismiss it entirely but it was put in there really to i think as it relates to how somebody played the game really not what they did off the field uh, you know during or after their career but did they play the game fairly did they play it the right way um, so I think it is a question voters should be looking at when they evaluate somebody's playing career. I mean, I always say the bedrock of sports is fair play. If you as a fan can't think the game is play being played on an even playing field, it it's hard to accept the outcome. And, you know, that's what some of these things do, especially with PEDs. They, they create an uneven playing field. So I think that's the least that you can ask a competitor is that they play fairly. And I think what Beltron did, brings that question into into voters' minds. So it'd be fascinating to see where he winds up. I think probably the one guy I would say has the best chance of joining Fred McGriff now being inducted next July is, is Scott Rowland. You know, he's created a lot of momentum. He compares favorably with Ron Santo when you look at some of the numbers. Um, and I, I think that he's got the best chance of anybody on the ballot of, of being voted in. So how do you compare repeated steroid use or alleged steroid use to a one-year blip for Carlos Beltran stealing signs? How do you compare that when you think about voting? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I don't think they're exactly comparable. Um, you know, I think the Beltran situation is, you know, I know people have pointed out he was the one player identified, but you have to remember he was retired at that point. And they were not able, talking about the Mitchell investigation, uh, the investigation into uh, the sign-stealing scandal by the commissioner's office, 
they really weren't able to um, really touch any active player when it came to any penalties. So he kind of was singled out, and I know he was part of uh, an active group there that was involved with it based on the commissioner's finding. But it's a really good question. I have to sit down and really think about that long and hard. I'm not sure you can equate them equally. Uh, but again, each in a broad scope, uh, go against the, uh, the doctrine of fair play in baseball. Now you voted for David Ortiz last year, kind of a different, but similar situation where there was a positive test, but it wasn't really counted against him. Is there any comparison there to Carlos Beltran? Like, do you plan on voting for Beltran based on the one year of the sign stealing compared to these repeated PED users who you didn't vote for like Bonds and Clements? Yeah, no, the Ortiz situation is very different. It was not considered by Major League Baseball a positive test. He was on a report that said he was part of these people who were considered positive, but no substance was ever identified. The Players Association challenged the report. The commissioner came out and is the only case where the commissioner singled somebody out and said, no, we do not consider that a positive test. So. Yeah, it's not to me to overrule what baseball officially has ruled was not a positive test. Um, so just going by that, I didn't consider David Ortiz a positive test because that's in the words of the commissioner himself. He, he didn't consider that. So it's a little bit different. Um, I always think it's good to have no true hard and fast rules with this. You look at these cases on a case by case basis. And I don't think we've seen anything quite like Carlos Beltran. I mean, does he suffer, say, a one-year penalty and, and gets voted in the next year if people jump on board? Uh, does he get treated like some of these other PED guys where, let's face it, they most of these guys, well, at least some of them, Bonds and Clemens, got a vast majority of votes. But as you know, with Hall of Fame voting, that's not enough. You need three quarters. That's a really high bar to pass. Uh, so my guess is that Beltran will get in someday, but I think it might be very difficult for him in the first year on the ballot. Well, the guys you voted for last year stand your ballot this year? Uh, probably. I'd have to go back, and I, I haven't really dove into all of it yet. But, um, you know, over the years, I probably have voted for more people than I did when I first started out. That's just a reflection of where the Hall of Fame has gone. I mean, when I first started out, it, it was hard for anybody, uh, especially on a first ballot, to be elected to the Hall of Fame. And now it seems like they're uh, at least when you look at the average number of votes on a ballot, that number has continued to gone up to go up. And I don't have a problem with that. I, I think the standards have expanded a little bit. Um, it's good that the game celebrates more of these players. When you think about the game expanding over the years, why not have more players in as well? So, um, you know, the more players we get in, I'm not saying you just lower the bar to ridiculous proportions, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing from when I first started voting when I thought it was much tougher to get in. Who are you really hoping to get in? Uh, is there anyone specific who you're really supporting when it comes to candidacy? Well, for years it was Fred McGriff, so I was really happy that Fred got in. I never understood why he didn't get more support. I think his highest vote total is 39%, and uh, it, it just boggled my mind. I'd never heard a convincing argument of why he wasn't a Hall of Famer. Now, listen, he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. I get that. But I think he had so much um, – on his resume. And I feel the same way now about Jeff Kent and it doesn't look like the writers are going to vote him in. And, and I just don't get that one either. I mean, maybe it's a case of both guys played for several different teams. Um, and I know a lot of people look at the war quotient and say, maybe it doesn't measure up to a lot of people. Um, but listen, Jeff Kent has more home runs than anybody at the second base position all time. He has more hundred RBI seasons than any second baseman in history. Uh, and he played the majority of his career at second base. And and I know in the major leagues, they just don't give away positions. Like, you're not playing the middle infield just because you can hit. If you can't play that position, if you're that bad defensively, there's no team that's going to keep running you out there the way they did for Jeff Kent into his late 30s. So was he, you know, the best second baseman ever? No, not defensively, but... Um, the bat certainly gave whatever team he played on an advantage over other teams. When you got really first base production out of a second baseman, that's pretty much what Jeff Kent was. Um, so I'm really surprised he doesn't get more support. It doesn't look like he's going in. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised that really he hasn't gained any momentum either. How big do you expect your ballot to be this year? Is it going to be smaller, kind of like last year, or are you looking at many guys who you could plan on voting for? 
Uh, it's probably going to be smaller, I think, compared to a lot of people. I mean, I know there's some people out there who just they fill in 10 names. I don't quite understand that. Uh, but that's what I love about the voting. You know, people are going to bring their own you know, their own opinions to it. And that's what it is. It's, this is not an SAT test. Where's the right answer and a wrong answer? Um, you know, I have no problem with people if they want to vote for none or Ted. Um, I tend to be somewhere maybe slightly below average. And this year, I'm not sure where it'll fall, probably somewhere maybe half of the 10, somewhere around there, four to six range. Um, so I, I don't look to fill my ballot all 10 spots. I'm just going to throw ballots, throw names out there because 10 are available. I really want to believe in my heart when I check some of these names that I do, you know, I could see them up at the podium uh, making their Hall of Fame speech. Want to come with Tom Berducian. In just a moment, stay tuned. This is Sports Talk Chicago. Tom Berducci still here on Sports Talk Chicago. Tom, a few more questions before we finish out. First off, the Book of Joe. How did it happen? Yeah, this was really interesting. I was always curious about how the job of managing has changed in the big leagues because I, you know, people will watch a game and it's our instinct to second guess the manager. It's part of what we love about baseball. And so many times I would think these people actually think the manager is making these decisions when a lot of these decisions now have been made by front offices before the game, uh, if not right, not outright ordered to do so. The manager is influenced by his decision based on what the front office says. So I was really curious to to uh, identify kind of how the dynamic changed. I started covering baseball when the manager was the nexus of power in an organization. He determined how a team would play. Sometimes he picked the roster. He certainly made all in-game decisions. And in the last five to 10 years, that has certainly flipped where now the front office has more power. Generally, the chief baseball operating officer has more power and more money than the manager. And a lot of times this affects how the game is played, the strategy of the game, not just the acquisitional side of the game. So I was curious to look at that. And of course, with Joe Madden, his career has spanned the, the arc of that change. I mean, he didn't start managing until he got a job with the Rays, a devil Rays back then at, at the age of 52. Uh, one world championship, obviously with the Cubs, and everything seemed to be really cool in Chicago. And I think the Cubs found out, like a lot of really good teams did, it is so hard to repeat in this baseball world. It hasn't happened in a generation now. Um, so I was curious to find out about that, the manager's perspective, the change in power. And Joe is just the perfect vehicle to dive into these kind of elements and how the game has changed. He's, he's a great student of the game. He's done everything in the game. Minor league manager, major league manager, bench coach, scout, um, roving instructor. He's got so much experience in the game and has such a, I, I think, a, a really critical eye when it comes to examining not just himself but how the game has changed, the stories around the game beyond his own clubhouse. So he was the perfect vehicle to kind of dive into these things. And he happens to be a great storyteller because he's been so many places and, and done so many things. I like to think of him as a kind of a combination of Yogi Berra and Phil Jackson. You know, he's got that that wit of Yogi Berra way of simplifying complex issues so people understand it and, and sort of that Zen master quality of Phil Jackson, where communicating with players and, and, um, and media, especially he's one of the best. So it was fun to dive into and, and great working with Joe. Do you think that was his downfall here in Chicago and even out in Anaheim as well? The fact that he's kind of a more control hands-on manager and things changed in regards to the front office. Well, I don't know if it was downfall. I do think the game changed around him. And as someone who came up in the system where, let's face it, one of his mentors was Gene Mock, right? And the game was very different back then. If you're a younger manager today, just as an example, somebody like Aaron Boone with the Yankees, you know, this is all you know. He, you know, Aaron Boone was not managing. The game was very different. Um, so to Aaron Boone, you know, nothing really has changed. To Joe Madden, it's like, I, I understand the game has changed, but I also think there's a place for some of the old school thinking. So I think that rebalancing of the game is something that a manager who knows the way it was will have a tougher time trying to get there. And I think actually baseball is getting there. I mean, you know, Theo Epstein self is a driving force behind the game, really returning to 
putting it back into the hands of the players. I mean, you think about rules like eliminating the shift and larger bases to encourage stolen bases. These are all a pushback against where analytics brought the game, which was an extremely efficient game, but less entertaining when it comes to the pace of the game, the pace of action, how exciting the game is played. Um, and, and Theo would tell you that himself, that you know the game does need to get back to a more quicker pace, more action-packed game. And I think we're getting there, and I, I'm really anxious to, to get to next season and see literally what the game looks like, because hopefully it does look very different. Um, but yeah, I, I think the game is, I don't want to say it's swinging all the way back because I love analytics. There's certainly a place in the game for it. It's like I said, it's more of a rebalancing. And I think the game next year will start getting us back to that point. And Tom, before we finish up today, last question, what's the funniest moment you've been a part of working at MLB network? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was the funniest, but it was, the funnest was the night of we called the night of 162. Remember that? What was it? 2011 oh, yeah. or tw- yeah, where all these games are coming down at, at a similar time at night. I happened to be on the first shift of that night where some of the East Coast games were ending, and and it was just I didn't want to leave. I, I was sitting there watching the different games on multiple monitors, and uh, and I forget which game ended last, but it might have been the Atlanta Philadelphia game. And I remember literally running back into the studio, and I think maybe Sean Casey, a couple other guys, Harold Reynolds were on the air, and I was like, "Can you believe this?" I felt like a little kid, uh, and I was just I was just thrilled to be a part of it, and. I tell people all the time, MLB Network is, to me, it's like cell phones. Like, if you're a baseball fan, it's hard to remember. We actually had a time where there was no MLB Network. Like, can you remember a time when there was no cell phones? (laughs) To me, it becomes such a big part of your life. I don't want to say you take it for granted because I never do, but um, it's nice to know that it's always there when you want it. And um, being able to go through all those games that night, uh, I mean – I was dumb enough to think maybe we'd get another game like that or another night like that somewhere down the road, but it's still, we haven't had a finish like that since. And that was the best night of network. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure to have you on Uh, best wishes for the upcoming season and looking forward to staying in touch as well. You got it. Thanks for having me. Sports Talk there with Tom Berducci. That'll do it for us today here on Sports Talk Chicago. Big thank you to Tom Berducci and all of you for tuning into today's program. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports, Facebook, John's Clue. Want to watch more of this show? Head on over to SportsTalkChicago.com. So long, everyone. No! No! We're the turtle!